When I coined and trademarked the term eco-fashion in 1995, people thought I was crazy. And I said, wait, but I want to style the world of change and I want to change the world of style and I want to bring these worlds together. And the current system with fast fashion has crammed farmers and factory workers down to levels that are inhumane. We now have a standard that focuses on renewable energy, social justice, water stewardship, as well as material health and material reuse. Welcome to the Beyond Capital podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. Together, Eva and I have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We want to show you how social impact can exist in a company's operations, product, and culture, sometimes unexpectedly. We hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of social impact for you and feeling inspired by the potential to do good. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. And today's guest is Marcy Zaroff. Marcy is the founder and CEO of Eco Fashion Corp's Greenhouse of Brands that includes MetaWare, Yes And, Farm to Home, and Reset. She pioneered the term eco fashion in 1995. Marcy is a serial entrepreneur who has also founded Under the Canopy, a sustainable fashion company, Beyond Brands, Good Catch Foods, a plant-based fish product brand, and the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. Marcy serves as an advisor and board member to many companies, and also she helped to define the global organic textile standard and the first USA fair trade textile certification. Welcome, Marcy. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. It is such a pleasure to have you. I am so grateful to be able to dive into this conversation where we can highlight fashion, food, nutrition, and all of the areas where you have deep, deep expertise. I want to get started by highlighting you as, as as an expert in the environmental impact of the fashion industry first, and we will talk a little bit more about the other areas that you focused on in the past. You call yourself an ecopreneur, which is a term I love, but really, you know, many of us understand issues around waste or water consumption to produce certain textiles, for example. But I would love if you could shed light really on the scale of the fashion industry's challenges and um, some of the solutions that you have pioneered. Yeah, no, um, I sort of embarked into fashion um, as you briefly mentioned, you know, kind of coming off of organic and natural food as well as beauty products and just saw this whole missing link in this wellness and environmental consciousness and humanitarian equation in the sense that most people don't realize fashion is one of the leading air and water polluters in the world. And when you, you know, pull the curtain back on the fashion industry and you unveil the human and environmental impacts of fashion, you know, the magnitude and multitude of those impacts is very significant when you look at water, energy use, climate change, chemical use, waste, social justice. Um, so across the board, as I started to kind of go down this rabbit hole, it became very apparent to me that you can't really support one part of the agricultural equation when you're looking at, you know, organic and, and you know, ingredients at the farm level. And you have to really connect the dots 
of these lifestyle sectors and fashion is something people love, right? And it's got so much cachet and, you know, my big fashion background is I got best dressed in high school. So um, I just always loved fashion. And so taking everything that I had learned in food and beauty, I essentially just segued and started to, you know, integrate the learnings and, um, you know, being in the trenches of food and beauty and, and bring that into the fashion industry with the mission to revolutionize the fashion industry through education, inspiration, innovation, and collaboration, and to shift the paradigm and bridge the tribe in the boardroom and the tree hugger and the fashionista and demonstrate that, you know, style, quality, fit, color, comfort, hand, price are not exclusive with social and environmental responsibility. So one of the things that immediately pops to mind in this is, of course, the most environmental thing would be to wear the same clothes for 50 years, at least until they wore out. And so, (laughs) you know, but at the same time, clothing and fashion, you know, are important signals for society, such as like, if I'm going over to someone's home, it, you know, I can show respect to them by the way I dress. And it's not just a matter of showing up in 50 year old clothes. So how do you find that balance and maybe this is too big of a question for starting out the this uh, discussion, but you know, how do you find that balance between consumption and sort of wearing things long enough? That big systematic thinking that you're so well known for. Yeah, so there are many different spokes in the wheel of you know eco fashion or sustainable fashion, and I mentioned some of the kind of you know, high level topics like water and energy and climate change. So, you know, when you look at what are the areas of focus in terms of story or impact that you want to hone in on, then you would make different decisions as a result of what you just asked. So circularity is a very big part of the sustainable fashion movement today. So you have rental, you have reuse and repurposing companies like Renewal Workshop, companies like The Real Real, where you can buy essentially vintage wear. So you're not buying new fashion, you know, and you can even swap that clothing in your, in your closet. In fact, a couple of our brands right now are looking at, you know, having these rental closets in conjunction with buying. So you actually have a choice. And I happen to be an ambassador for Rent the Runway and for Wardrobe that have built their business models on economy. Um, But when you're looking at buying something new, you know, that's where really you start to look at chemical use, climate change impact, um, water use, social justice, waste. And so that's where I'm a huge advocate of organic and regenerative um, agriculture, which ultimately segues into organic fashion and home textiles, no differently than if you're buying a finished food product and you want it to taste good, but you want it to be healthy. Similarly, we want, and you want, don't want it to be destroying, you know, our, our planet. And as um, same thing with fashion, you can buy great stylish product that is also better for you. So you can look good, feel good and do good in the world. It's also better for the environment in the sense that one of my passion points, and of course, I think at the root of a lot of my life work is organic agriculture. So I look at how can we use soil as our greatest solution to climate change, which ultimately cotton is such an important crop. I mean, it's even though it's less than 3% of the world's agriculture, it uses over 20% of the most harmful 
and 10% of the most toxic carcinogenic pesticides. It's actually the most heavily sprayed industry in agriculture. So cotton is, is one of these things people think, oh, I'm wearing cotton. It's supernatural. And, you know, it's it's a natural fiber. That's what I've been taught, you know. And yet when you pull the curtain back and you look at, you know, the chlorine bleach and formaldehyde and heavy metals and all the toxic chemicals going into the processing and the dyeing, not to mention on the ground, the pesticides, insecticides, fertilizers, GMO seeds, and all the things that we're talking that same talk on the food side. So you really, it's all about no compromise to me and showing that, you know, fashion can be one of the most powerful vehicles for human transformation. If you lead with great design and then it's, oh, by the way, you know, you take them down the rabbit hole of, of the why it matters and all the impacts and, you know, 20 percent of the world's freshwater pollution is coming from textile treatment and dyeing. And in the case of organic cotton, as I just mentioned, it's not only a solution to agriculture and expansion of truly sustainable agriculture, but from a social justice lens, conventional cotton, you know, a lot of people don't realize in India, every half an hour, a cotton farmer is committing suicide because they're getting stuck on this pesticide treadmill and they're leveraging their farms to banks in partnership with the seed and chemical companies. So just there's so many layers here. The point is, is, you know, if you're not a part of the solution, you're a part of the problem. And we can all wear the change we wish to see in the world by just being educated and knowing in answer to your question, just knowing how to be a part of this movement. And there's a lot of different ways to, you know, to be a part of it. You are truly pointing out how a person can have an impact on the on people on the planet and also, you know, I'm sure these are sustainable businesses that generate a finan- can generate a financial return as well. So, you know, people planet and profit. I also agree with Ed. I just want to echo your systemic thinking in ter- in, ca- in terms of thinking about all stakeholders in the whole equation of fashion. What are maybe three best practices that our listeners could start to integrate when they think about their consumer choices in the fashion world that you would recommend? Fortunately, uh, it's a little be careful what you wish for. Uh, You know, everyone in the fashion industry today is drinking the proverbial, you know, sustainability Kool-Aid, right? And starting to look at or get on the radar, you know, how do we integrate better practices? So I think at this juncture, you know, you've got this spectrum of light green to dark green. So when, you know, the probably the simplest way to make decisions to, you know, start to participate in this movement would be, as I mentioned, you know, swapping, buying used, buying repurposed. Uh, renting, and then looking for reading labels and looking for brands, products, and companies that are further on that spectrum. Because I think a lot of the young, the, either the younger, newer companies, or even the mass market companies that are moving in this direction, who are still trying to navigate how to do this. I think there's this, you know, there's this pool of brands that have been born, you know, with sustainability in their DNA. So we're not half pregnant, right? We're, when I talk about my brands, whether it's, you know, Metaware as a B2B manufacturer, I mean, we are, we look at ourselves as the Intel inside of sustainable fashion. We have an office in India, team on the ground. We are navigating from source to story, a full turnkey plug and play model for other brands and retailers. So we're making it easy for other companies. And then from there, we birthed three of our own house brands. Yes. And seed to style and farm to home. Seed to style actually hasn't launched yet. It's launching in January. Going back to what to look for. So in our case, 
everything is certified to the Goth standard. And I know you mentioned that in my intro. The Goth standard is the platinum standard for a finished textile. It's the global organic textile standard. It is in parallel to the organic food standard that most people recognize on food products. We can't use that seal. That's governed by the USDA, the National Organic Program. We can't use that on textiles. But our equivalent to that is the Goth seal. So when you talk about a Goth certified product, it's free of all pesticides and GMOs, as well as all harmful chemicals, including, you know, even down to the packaging, we use only post-consumer recycled. Everything is is separated, so there's no contamination along the way. And every touch point in our supply chain from farm to finished product is part of the approved standard. So the finished product is what gets certified. So Second, you know, second thing after the renting and and reusing would be look for certified product, whether it's, you know, certified to the GOTS standard, certified to the Fair Trade Textile Standard with Fair Trade USA, or certified to the Cradle to Cradle Standard, which the fashion positive vertical is, you know, again, our version of, you know, the green building and standards and the cradle to cradle standard that was born in the building industry. We now have a standard that focuses on renewable energy, social justice, water stewardship, as well as material health and material reuse. So these are all things to look at. But again, going back to how does a how does somebody participate? There are a lot of really great curated websites in addition to the brands I mentioned that have these different stories and practices as well as brands that they're that they're featuring. So Marcy, I, I was really interested when you're, you know, talking about your B2B business there with you know, on the ground in India, presumably sourcing cotton there or somewhere near there. Is it hard to get the farmers to get on board with this, you know, if they're used to a certain method and you know, they've been spraying with the with the same stuff for a generation. Is it hard to get them to convert over? Do they make more money? Or is it kind of like requires this kind of revelation on their part to, to do right? Tell us a little bit what it's like on the, you know, way down deep in the at the ground level where the product is actually being grown. I wonder what's happening there. Yeah, I always say that's my happy place, right? It's like water for chocolate for me. So when I'm, you know, in the trenches with the farmers, the two things they probably care the most about, one is, of course, supporting their livelihood and being able to put food on the table. And the current system with fast fashion has crammed farmers and factory workers down to levels that are inhumane. I mean, at factory levels, you still have slave labor, you know, at the farm level, They're, you know, they're the ones that are being asked to, you know, basically do all this work and then practically give away their cotton, not even make back what they've had to invest, especially in lieu of the the high costs of the chemical inputs. So first you kind of addressed what we call zero budget natural farming, where we take them off the old system of having to buy GMO seeds and all these toxic, expensive chemicals that continue to get more and more expensive, by the way, over time. And they're paying, if they are taking loans, they're paying like 50, 60% interest rates on those loans. So it's, it's crazy. Oh no, it's a, it's a completely broken system. So we try to wean them off. We get them, you know, GMO free seeds. We teach them how to make their own fertilizers using, you know, cow dung and cow urine and all these different ingredients and turmeric. And, and then ultimately, you know, when they start to see the soil come back to life, because remember soil that's using conventional or farming that's using conventional agriculture has really depleted and destroyed the soil, which is why the regenerative agriculture movement is so important right now because it's not even about sustaining it's about rebuilding and regenerating our so- 
soil so that soil is healthy and can sequester carbon out of the atmosphere. So therein lies the second big concern of farmers, which is holy moly, they're on the ground. They are freaking out about what's happening with climate change. I mean, we see it you know, sort of from a distance, we read about it, we hear about it. We, you know, we, we certainly experience it if we're living in places like California or Florida with hurricanes, but you know, this is their livelihood every day. And one, one bad monsoon can wipe out their entire life, you know, in terms of their, their livelihood and what they depend on in their farm. So they're very sensitive and they're desperate for solutions. So we approach, we've always approached farmers from the lens of, yes, certainly, you know, we don't want the women who are walking through the, the fields wearing pesticide tanks on their backs and babies in slings on their fronts. We don't want them spraying with these, you know, pesticide tanks that they're manually using because of course that hurts human health and it hurts, you know, their own, their respiratory conditions, their families. But at the end of the day, what they're really honing in on again is their livelihoods and climate change. So that's the approach that we're taking when we t- start to educate them about how can we make sure that we protect protect them and their futures and at the same time protect you know their the health of the farmers and their families through you know minimizing the the toxic inputs that they're using is it easy to to get them to see the light is it like a what's the convert obviously it's super helpful to convert as many as as you can towards these more natural methods but i'm just wondering like is it like half of them go for it or almost all of them or is it you know i'm just curious just because it's so real. Sure. Of course. No. So first of all, it's a, there is obviously the element of supply and demand. So the more demand that's out there in the market and today, fortunately, and as MetaWare, we're seeing this and, and actually driving this, you know, everybody's waking up to, you know, understanding that organic and regenerative and sustainable cotton is the future of cotton. And so those conversations are certainly sparking more interest at the farm level. And farmers are very, um, <laughs> they're very community oriented especially in the tribal villages, which is where we do most of our farming practices. And our we actually have our own project, as you mentioned in my bio, called RESET, which stands for Regenerate the Environment, Society, and Economy Through Textiles. So we provide training, we provide seed support, and every step of the way, we're helping them. But, you know, yes, there's resistance on the ground because they're scared. They're not, you know, they've been lured in by these chemical companies told that they're going to have these grandiose yields and, you know, better systems. And, and they're misled and most of them are illiterate. So they just, they believe it because at the end of the day, they see dollar signs, they see a better yield and they see a way for them to make more money. And unfortunately, that's not what's happening. And now that they're waking up to that, they're hungry for some other way to go forward. Even though if you really look back at their history, this is how their parents or their ancestors were farming. Um, But now that, you know, but we're kind of taking them back full circle to that place where they knew how to, you know, by, by default, intuitively, they knew how to, you know, use these kinds of methodologies that are inherent to organic and regenerative agriculture, like crop rotation and cover cropping and, and intercropping and, and, you know, and ways to, to help build the soil. So we're, te- we're reteaching them these things. I think at the end of the day, you know, once you have proof of concept, which we now have, they start sharing it with their friends and the other villages. And that's how you, you, you got to pick a small group to start with and show them that it works and how it works. And then you continue to just spread that by, yeah. you know, encouraging them to talk to others. And, and so that's what we've been doing. Yeah. Cool. 
You know, I want to, because you're such an expert in all fields, I do want to dig a little bit more into some of the fabrics. We are living at a time where fabrics like Tencel and others are kind of rising to the more consumer awareness level. And, you know, I don't consider myself a fashion expert by any means, but I, you know, have probably, you know, one tensile thing in my closet and have learned about even other sustainably certified fabrics as well. How do they stack up with organic cotton? And, you know, what do you use in your brands? Yeah. So I would say there are probably three core fabrics we use. The two first ones I'm going to mention more than the last, but organic cotton is, you know, definitely our, your most prominent fiber that we use. And that is because I am this, you know, kind of soil junkie and advocate and, and believe, you know, that, that giving people great t-shirts and denim and, and bed sheets and robes and all the things that are cotton, they can be, you know, part of this movement and just make it easy, make it easy for them. So organic cotton, big one. And of course the seed represents life. And so I take that energy very seriously all the way up to finished product. Secondly, you mentioned Tencel and I've been a huge fan and business partner of lensing that makes Tencel, Lyocell, and, and now they have added on Tencel Modal. I've been, you know, educating with them and for them for over 20 25 years globally. And so, and, and so we've just recently integrated Tencel into our Yes And brand in our apparel, as well as into our um, home brand that's launching January 21st on QVC called Farm to Home. We're introducing Tencel. What is, now, ten, what people is Tencel? Think Tencel? Yeah, I was just going there because <laughs> that, you I'm know, people who eat, eat <laughs> it's all good. No, people who even have heard of Tencel don't know what it is. They think it's technical. They think it's synthetic. Tencel is the cellulose that's extracted from the eucalyptus plant. It's broken down what? using just a non-toxic solvent because it's a very, very soft you know, eucalyptus is very soft, unlike hemp or bamboo, which are bast fibers. They're very, very strong and hard to break down. So when you break it down, and by the way, Tencel, the eucalyptus grows on managed tree farms on non-arable land. So you're not taking away, you know, any kind of crops because you can grow it without water. It grows like a weed if you've seen eucalyptus grow. And then it's manufactured in Lensing's closed loop system. So all the byproducts are used efficiently. It's a very very eco-friendly um, fiber and it's three times stronger than cotton. It grows, as I said, without chemicals and water. It's FSC certified. And now Tencel has even, Lensing has even had Tencel net zero carbon certified. So it is now officially, they're, they're offsetting emissions so that it is a you know, it is an amazing fiber when you're starting to move towards carbon strategies, which Eco Fashion Corp, my company is kept committed to being completely net zero carbon by 2000. 22 by 11 11 2022 we want to be carbon neutral okay so i mean i'm a huge fan of tencel we actually own the trademark ecolyptus which is how we're branding tencel going into this next chapter um to story that i just told you and then the third fiber we use not as often because there is still an environmental issue with polyester even if it's recycled but we do use our pet which is recycled poly it's derived from plastic bottles that are 
broken down back into a pulp and respawn into a fiber. It does solve for, you know, one of our greatest, you know, environmental issues, taking plastic bottles out of landfills. However, what we've discovered is those fibers, as they're more, even more broken than, than virgin polyester, when you wash them, you know, every single synthetic in the history of mankind, and we're talking, you know, 60, 70 years of like polyester and nylon and acrylic and all these fibers, they, when you wash them, they shed microfibers and those microfibers end up going into our water systems, our rivers, and ultimately our oceans. So you will see studies as high as 90% of fish today are, are showing traces of microfibers in them. All those synthetic fibers look like fish food and the fish are eating them and they're destroying ocean ecosystems. There's other studies you'll see that will show a third of that plastic we know of that's in the ocean is textile microfibers. That'll take some of the fun wow. out of it next time I wear my disco suit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I know it's one of these, you, you just know, can't wash it. Battle. Which battle do you want to pick? <laughs> exactly. When my wife says to wash it, I can just say no. No, you can't wash it. Exactly. <laughs> and, and Ed, to, to also illuminate um, something that Marcy said earlier, she mentioned there are a couple of websites that help shed light on this. One that The one where I read a material guide was good on you for our, our listeners because I am not an expert. I just you know read this guide a couple weeks ago in anticipation of this conversation and, and also um, having a friend who started a sustainable fashion line. But we also wanted to hear it from you, Marcy, um, to really unpack that as well. It's interesting because, you know, I've seen companies try over the years to do these curated sites and I just, you know, everything is about timing. And I think now with, you know, the internet has changed the game. And so, you know, being able to actually Google and expose, you know, what, what's in things, where are they being made? How are they being made? And of course the fashion revolution movement, which you may or may not have heard of was born Rana Plaza tragedy that happened in 2013 when the factory in Bangladesh uh, collapsed and, you know, 1,134 people lost their lives in one moment, right? So that created an uproar around and in countries now around the world, you have these consumer-driven movements around the, quote, fashion revolution. Fashionrevolution.org is the URL. And that's a great resource where you can go and learn about, you know, why transparency is so important. What are the impacts? Who are the brands that are part of this. And it's been a, you know, and it dives into those questions, what's in our clothes and who made my clothes. And so April 24th every year is considered fashion revolution day. And generally that week you'll see all over the world, you'll see all kinds of events that are very um, informative and inspirational around why, you know, this industry is, is such an important one for us to, you know, to focus on and, and, shift because business as usual just can't continue. So these, these curated um, sites are good on you, you know, that are ratings are just, I'm seeing a proliferation of them now, which is super exciting. I think it's a testament to that people are waking up. They are looking for this information. They are looking for solutions and they want to be a part of this. You know, you see like the true cost and they kind of drop a bomb on you, very educational, 
but then, you know, there's this call to action that's missing. Like, where do you go? What do you do? And, and I think a lot of the millennials, you know, were so used to shopping at places like H&M and, and Forever 21. And they were, you know, they didn't know there was anything wrong. But as soon as sort of they started to see these films or, or these reports or, you know, fashion revolution events, suddenly it's like, OK, where do we go? How do we do this? And I think that's where the industry is right now, where, you know, these sites are being born to kind of make it easy. And then, as, as I mentioned earlier, our business model is not just to make it easy for consumers like yes and which the url is joinyesand.com it's farm all the way to every touch point we try to engage the consumer even all the way through to checkout we're right now in the process of implementing a carbon app at the end kind of a and a spotify build on you know where you can actually for i think 45 cents you can offset your whole order. We're looking at every which way to make sure that this is very collaborative because this whole movement, you know, is about, as Albert Einstein once said, you know, we can't solve today's problems with the same consciousness that created them. And so we're trying to educate and activate and engage. And so, you know, every way that, that we can do so, we do. Absolutely. Does sustainable eco fashion have to be more expensive where the industry stands today? And if the answer is yes, do you think it'll change over time? Yeah, it's probably one of the single most asked questions, right? Because there is, there are these stigmas. And I'd say there's three stigmas that have always come with sustainable fashion. I mean, when I coined and trademarked the term eco fashion in 1995, people thought I was crazy. You know, like no one's ever going to buy into that, Marcy. And I said, wait, but I want to style the world of change. And I want to change the world of style. And I want to bring these worlds together because I'm that person. And the three stigmas that existed then that probably still exist today. One is that you have to give up, you know, the things you want, right? Style, quality, fit, color, comfort. The second is you have to buy more. And the third is, well, how do I really know? Right. And there's, you know, I'm going to address the second one per your question, which is, you know, the price. So I've always, my mantra has always been to break that second stigma and to democratize organic and make it accessible and make it affordable for everybody. And the way to do that is to understand how to navigate a supply chain starting at the farm level, which is why I'm so deeply immersed in the whole kind of farm part of the business model that we have, because I couldn't go to a factory back in the day when I started this movement. I couldn't just go and say, you know, hey, can you make me a product and make sure it's all sustainable and here are all the things I'm concerned about or I want you to look at? Because they didn't have that knowledge and that and the resources and the understanding. I've been building up from the supply chain from the source, from the farm. And what that's taught me is the reason that sustainable product has been, you know, quote, uh, considered overpriced and even organic food, there was the day where you had to pay a lot more, you know, the the old whole paycheck stigma, right? Where 40% more for organic food. Um, But today, Costco is the biggest buyer of organic food, right? So it's become much more affordable. Well, in the case of textiles, what people don't realize is that a shirt, a dress, an apparel product can change hands seven to 10 times in this supply chain from the farm to the gin, to the spinner, to the knitter or weaver, to the cut, to the sew, to the dyeing, to the finishing, to the printing or to the, you know, to the packaging, to the shipping. Right. And so when you start to get in on the ground floor of a product, you can cut a lot of inefficiencies out of the supply chain. You can cut a lot of brokers out, a lot of men out, and you can, the more vertically integrated you are, the more you can add value to your product 
but still drive with value and still drive with, it's a great price. And oh, by the way, you're getting added value. We're not, you know, this isn't about sacrifice or deprivation. We're not taking style and quality away from you. We're starting at building a a full supply chain. We're building the finished product for you. And oh, by the way, it's low impact dyed. It's, you know, it's all, you know, eco-friendly ingredient materials and inputs. It's certified organic, you know, recycled or circular. It's, you know, it's embedded with, you know, we look at women's empowerment and, and climate justice and um, every way that we can incorporate, you know, these kinds of stories from the source all the way up to the story, but with the substance, right? You know, you hear, in fact, in in the early years when I used to work with Target um, and I launched their first organic program they ever did, it was the marketing department that was driving that initiative. And so it was, you know, they didn't know what they were doing. They just wanted to tell a story. But the PD&D or the product design and development and sourcing teams had no, it wasn't like their wheelhouse. They didn't know how to do it either. Today, the marketing teams are often being told just stay on the sidelines while the sourcing and production and design teams are the ones driving these sustainability initiatives. So it's helping sort of the whole industry now start to move to another level where because of all these global collaborations across major apparel and and home, you know, fashion brands and, and manufacturers, we are now seeing so much increased demand and supply. So price points have come down in general. And, you know, you can find sustainable fashion in, you know, your high end designers like Stella McCartney, all the way to your, you know, fast fashion retailers like H&M. So it really is what kind of quality are you looking for? But I think we've gotten to a place now where there's something for everyone from a price point standpoint. And then going back to what I was saying about my own personal mantra, whether it was under the canopy or it's yes and, or it's now, you know, bringing seed to style and farm to home to QVC, which is definitely a mainstream audience that's very price conscious. It really is about leading with no compromise on price or design. Absolutely. And I'd like to turn to you and get to some of our rapid fire questions so we could get to know what powers you to do all that you do, which is, you know, certainly incredible. The first question is, what book is on your nightstand right now? (laughs) Well, my friend gave me a book called Meta Human. Pak Chopra. And um, it's very similar to actually my book, which is also on my nightstand, which is called Eco Renaissance. I don't know if, if you're aware of this, but um, I published a book with or Simon Schuster published my book last year called Eco Renaissance with the tagline co-create stylish, sexy and sustainable world. And MetaHuman is sort of an extension of this understanding that we are connected to our environment. We're all a part of this collective ecosystem and we're all connected each other. And so, you know, the reason that MetaWare and MetaWare is it's about it's going beyond. And that's what the word meta means. So that would be the next book I'm going to start to look at. Okay. Well, in order to write a book, you're going to need to be fired up in the morning. So we all want to know what is your go-to beverage in the morning, coffee, tea, or caffeine free? (laughs) Oh, no, no. I, I, I start my day with a cup of organic coffee every day. Um, I did go 10 years without it, but I've, uh, I full circle back. back. Um, and I usually have a green juice or <laughs> I'm back a green juice or, or an organic grape or an organic grapefruit juice too. Those are like my go-to. I have to start my day with my juice and my coffee. <laughs> Name something that is giving you hope right now. 
You know, I love the engagement around regenerative agriculture. It gets me like in a weird geeky way, very excited because I've been doing this for so long and, you know, starting, like I said, with food and beauty, which in my book, I do connect the dots of food, beauty, fashion, business, wellness, art. So it's a whole lifestyle. So when I see the younger generations asking, you know, where do I get all this? It's not why it's why not like they get it. And so that, you know, I pinch my dick because as I said, I've been swimming upstream for three decades in consumer products, really, you know, educating and, and, and pushing, teaching and igniting and then creating, of course, which I love. But there was a lot of resistance for a lot of years. I mean, there was a day where, where everybody in the organic industry knew each other. You know, today you have 83% of Americans buying organic food, at least occasionally. And that gets me like so excited <laughs> in a weird way. So do you have a favorite resource for staying up on current events? like a podcast or website or newsletters or anything? How do you keep up with the world? Oh gosh. Um, I'm very active on social media or, you know, I guess relatively speaking, probably is somewhat active. I mean, there are definitely people who are more so, but um, so I re I, I go to like, Twitter and I look at what are my friends reading and saying and you know I I have a great tribe globally and I you know and it's like-minded individuals and people are very resourceful and love to share so I think that's probably where where I find my best content that I dive into and love to read and you know (laughs) with the elections and I kind of got sucked into the news media but historically I wasn't a big media person. Although every single day with my coffee and my juice, I do read the New York Times every day. That's great. (laughs) What is one piece of advice you would give to your 20 year old self? Probably to not get stuck in the muck and recognize that when, you know, you feel like you're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole, that let go, surrender. And that's when you pivot. Right. And I think one of my greatest learnings as an entrepreneur or an ecopreneur, and I've always said, I feel like a little kid in a candy store. I get to do what I love, you know, make a living and change the world. Right. So at any point in time, when I look at the history of my ride, it's kind of like seatbelt on, you know, whatever you think is going to happen is not going to happen that way. Right. So just allow for the flow, allow yourself when you feel like you're hitting a wall to see what you might perceive as a challenge, as an opportunity to get smarter, stronger, and learn how to grow and, and be even better at what you're doing. So, you know, I, I've, I've often joked that I've felt like a walking cliche, you know, what one door closes, another one opens, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you smarter and stronger. And just that's from life experience and work experience is just recognizing that, you know, the ride or the journey of an entrepreneur is never mine. It's always going to take lots of unexpected twists and turns. Absolutely. It's been so great to speak with you. And I would love to end with one question. This is an industry that is growing extremely fast. In fact, you know, as an investor who leads with her values, I find it easier to express my values through fashion and, you know, maybe children's clothing for my my kids than I sometimes can through my investments. So that means that there, you know, are a lot of entrepreneurs out there really excited about this space. What advice would you give to other fashion entrepreneurs looking to launch their own sustainable brands? 
Yeah. So um, as many people who know me know, my favorite number is 11 because one plus one equals 11. We're stronger together than we are apart. I think this movement definitely is built on co-creation and collaboration. So I would say to anyone starting out, surround yourself with support, join, you know, there are so many amazing groups today that are out there kind of sharing resources and ideas and connecting the dots of their work. And we're going to get much farther and faster by doing so and building win-win business models. You know, I always said serving others is serving ourselves. So I love to mentor and give back on these boards that I'm on. And I know there's a lot, you know, of, of people out there that are now sort of leaning in and supporting even major brands like Patagonia that, you know, kind of they really are very transparent in terms of sharing their their supply chains even. So, and then MetaWare, you know, is a great resource for young brands because, you know, whether it's a small startup all the way to a some of the largest retailers in America, you know, we are equipped to do small scale production all the way through to, you know, millions of units a month if need be. I think finding, you know, just going to places like, you know, like Fashion Revolution, like the Textile Exchange, like the Organic Trade Associations, Organic Fiber Council, these are great resources um, at the NGO level. And then, of course, you know, at the brand level, it's amazing how collaborative this movement is. In fact, just I'll just end with saying that there was a day where I kind of felt somewhat schizophrenic because I was going from like the natural products industry trade shows like Expo, where, you know, everybody's like, I got your back, you know, and then I would go to the fashion movement shows like Magic and everyone would be like, watch your back. You know, and I'd be like, yeah. okay, how do I, how do I bring these two very dichotomous worlds together? And, um, and so that, you know, that's been my greatest challenge and opportunity over the past 25 years. With that, thank you, Marcy. It's been incredible to learn from you. I know we could do it whole other separate episodes we are and we are grateful for your precious time with everything that you have going on and all all of the social and environmental impact that you are having on the world thank you so much for being with us today thank you so much for having me and and sharing uh this information because really that's i think the only thing holding back this movement you know we can all wear the change we wish to see in the world but people just have to know the where and the what and the why so thank you for having me yeah it's really really been a great time thanks for joining us have a great day thank you you as well take care Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone.